Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. Healthcare costs, medications and services continue to increase in price, but why? We find out about one of the biggest reasons, PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers and who they are. Plus we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Ever since the COVID pandemic, it seems that everything has gone up in price and healthcare is top of that list, despite the fact that Connecticut has allegedly some of the best healthcare in the nation. We also appear to be paying the most for it as well, especially when back in 2010, President Obama introduced the Affordable Care Act, which was supposed to herald in a new era of exactly what it said, affordable care, but it never really managed to deliver on that promise. Now, 13 years on and one global pandemic later, we're seeing healthcare costs and medication prices at record highs. So what or who is behind the ever-increasing costs? They're called Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs, and until recently, we knew little about them as they acted in almost secrecy, negotiating with pharmaceutical companies over their drugs and with local governments over various state healthcare costs and with pharmacists up and down the country who provide services to you and me every day with prescription medications and services. To understand the stranglehold PBMs have on your and my healthcare costs, I caught up with Doug Hoy, CEO of the National Community Pharmacists Association that looks after the interests of almost 20,000 independent pharmacies across the nation, and Greg McKenna, chairman and pharmacist of the Nutmeg Pharmacy Group that has five local pharmacies serving Eastern Connecticut. To you both, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure. So, Doug, I want to start with you from it's like a, a bigger picture. We keep hearing about pharmacy benefit managers. Tell us where we're at with these and why they're such a problem. PBMs are some of the biggest business operators in the country that probably most average people have never heard of. They control the prescription drugs that almost every American in the United States takes, and they profit from that control. And what we're finally seeing after years and years and years, NCPA, we're a trade association based in D.C. We've been screaming about this for decades. Members of Congress, state legislatures, in some states anyway, are taking action to begin to rein these PBMs in, hold them accountable, because we're finding in some, whether it's a state or federal government, they've overcharged taxpayers hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to pad their pockets. And those are just some of the places that we found probably gets into billions of dollars that they've overcharged the American public over the last you know 20 years. So we're seeing some momentum, but there's still a lot more 
that needs to be done to reform these bad actors. And I'm guessing from a state-by-state basis varies accordingly. It does. And so one thing that has happened in the last two years is that the Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, you know, how many unanimous decisions do we see coming out of the Supreme Court, ruled that states can have more oversight over PBMs. PBMs had hidden under something called ERISA for decades. And the Supreme Court ruling said, not so fast states, you do have the ability to have some oversight over these entities that are insuring people in your state. And so that's created a cascade effect. Dozens, hundreds of pieces of legislation in states have been introduced and many have been passed. But you're right, it is uneven. Not all states are equal and some states are still have a lot more work to do. Why are some states, with the impact of the cost of health care, not only the U.S. pocketbook, which you probably have better stats on than I do, in a state-by-state basis, like in the state of Connecticut, healthcare costs a fortune. And it not only costs a fortune to the state, but it also costs a fortune to the taxpayer. And why are only some states understanding we've just come off a high inflationary trend and you know people are looking to save money and some of the largest expenditures, not only national as well as state and as well as personal expenditures, which healthcare is. In fact, it's taking away from people to eat because they need to have medicine. Why are some states not responding? And in fact, not only some, probably a majority of the states, right? I would say the majority of the states are doing something. Even traditionally, you know, you've got blue states and red states that are both doing something. You know, California has passed laws. New York has passed laws, you know, traditionally blue states, but then also traditionally red states like Tennessee, Florida, just recently with Governor DeSantis passed some very good PBM legislation. But to answer your question, Greg, and you may not like the answer, but I'll give it to you. There's three big PBMs and they control 80% of the marketplace. They have an oligopoly around the prescription drug benefit. And one of them is headquartered in your fair state of Connecticut. They employ a lot of people and probably generate a lot of revenue. And my guess would be they have a lot of influence in the state legislature. We talking about Optum or are we talking about our next door neighbor, Caremark CVS? Actually, no, Cigna, which owns Express Scripts. Exactly, owns Express Scripts. So Cigna, Aetna, and United Health all own these PBMs and they've purchased them in the last five to 10 years, which is called vertical integration. They're able to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner on all things prescription drugs because of this market share. Greg, let me turn to you and ask you a question. Obviously, as a a small business owner of independent pharmacies here in the state of Connecticut, how is it affecting your business? And what are you hearing when you speak to some of the local legislators? Give us some inside track on that. Recently, I just sent a letter to my local representative, Christine Palm, to actually talk about this because this unholy alliance of the PBMs and pharma together this year is going to have a hazardous effect on my business, but on the people that I service, because they are now creating contracts that go significantly. And contracts have always not been that great, but now it is significant. I just finished doing an an analysis of my business and the average brand name script that we fill in our stores is almost $347. Coincidentally, the contractual rates offered by all three of these PBMs are within a tenth of a percentage points 
in the offering, and they are all 10% below my cost, 10%. So if you take an average script cost that is retailed at $347, that costs me $342, and I'm now going to lose 10% of that, I'm going to then lose almost $36 per brand name script dispensed. That's not conducive with survival. You know, it's interesting, and it's one of the things that I sit there and I look at and say, why does the American public, besides the fact that we take care of the people that we're delivering to, we're taking that extra measure of care, going to the house, giving them a COVID shot recently when it was COVID, but upcoming now, this week alone, I've been to 80 households giving the new RSV vaccine. And then we're going to have another round of COVID shots again. The independent understands the cost of the prescription where the pharmacist that works for the big box guys don't see the cost. They don't understand the cost versus retail. We are sort of the canary in the mine for the legislators, and the legislators have failed to understand the value. That isn't the value we've always wanted to sit there and talk about because we've always said, hey, geez, we want to be the most trusted. We wanted to be the most accessible. But what we're also a very good predicator, what financially is happening by sending the letter to my representative, I'm certainly hoping, you know, she has in earnest said she's pushing this up through our Connecticut legislator, but this has to be federal. And I've written to every one of my federal legislators, my senators, my representatives, to ask them to come to the pharmacy and see what's going on. No one has had the decency to even call me and say, no, they're a little too busy or not. It just gone on deaf ears. And I'm starting to wonder why, you know, why aren't things being happening? You know, why are they allowing, why, first of all, why are you creating a system where it's okay that the pharmacy right off the bat loses $36 per prescription? Never mind the heat, light, electricities, never mind the robotics that is in place, never mind the investment in staff, all those things right off the bat, first blush, I'm losing that money. Meanwhile, the PBM and Doug, I, I certainly would love to have you talk about more and where they come from. But I see the PBM that takes money from everyone. They take money from the manufacturer to have their drug beyond the formulary. And I've heard numbers like $75 per script average. I'm not sure on the accuracy of that, but that's what I've been hearing. They take money from the employer to manage their prescriptions. They take money from the employee in the form of these DIRs right now, where they use Greg McKenna and Nutmeg Pharmacies to take a person's copay. And meanwhile, three months later, they're taking a percentage of that money back. They're taking money from the manufacturer, the employer, the employee, and now the pharmacy. And what I think is also interesting is they're also taking money from the employer because they have a contracted rate with the employer for for their prescription. But then on my side, they contract with me for less and they take that differential and they keep it. They're not giving it to the employer. They're not giving it to the state that might they might be you know managing that benefit for. So the PBM is taking money at least four ways and not being shared to lower the cost of the system. I mean, Greg's exactly right that and I think part of the power of the PBMs, CVS Aetna is over a $200 billion company. They're a Fortune 10 company. United Health Optum, those are another Fortune 10 company. Signet ESI, not far behind. These are huge companies. But again, 
I'm betting most of your listeners have never heard of a PBM or, or if they have, they're not exactly sure what it does. Their superpower of the PBMs is that they control the data. And by controlling the data, they're able to do all those things that Greg just mentioned. By controlling the data, they can affect costs to the consumer, to the employer, to the pharmacy, and even to the pharmaceutical manufacturer, which there's not a lot of sympathy out there for the pharmaceutical manufacturer. But in this case, they're actually getting rolled by the PBMs. And part of that secret power, that superpower that they have in the data is what Greg mentioned in the formulary. So the formulary is what, so every patient who has prescription drug coverage, there's a certain number of drugs that their insurance will, will pay for. And we're all used to as patients or consumers going to the pharmacy and saying, will my insurance cover it? The PBMs have figured out how to weaponize the formulary. So that, that innocent question of, will my insurance cover it? The PBMs have been able to say, yeah, we'll cover it if you give us enough money. So they go to the manufacturer who makes these drugs and say, look, if you want to be on my formulary, if you want to be on the covered drug list, how much are you going to pay me? And as Greg said, there's a certain amount. I've seen uh, the studies I've seen show about 30 to 40% of the cost of a brand drug go in paying gratitude or rebate to the PBM. So that's an increased cost that every one of us as a consumer, a patient, and a taxpayer is paying because of these added costs that PBMs add to it. And that doesn't even get into what Greg mentioned called spread pricing, where they pay the pharmacy a lower amount and charge the employer a higher amount. Some states, the state of Ohio showed that over $200 million had been paid in spread to the PBM, which really should have gone to the local pharmacies and should have gone to the state. So it's a racket. And there's, I think the tip of the iceberg has just been exposed to PBMs. And there's a lot more. The FTC is now doing an investigation. Congress has legislation that is pending, and hopefully it will be passed in this session. But we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of this. This is this is like big tobacco light as far as cost exposure to taxpayers. Let me just quickly pick up on something with both of you as well, which you've sort of led me down that path quite nicely, both of you. I want to talk about Medicare very quickly as well, obviously another system and its healthcare costs. Just recently, it was announced that 10 drugs on Medicare will be renegotiated. Just quickly talk to us both of you, and we'll start with Doug here. It sounds good, but then you look at the fine print and that doesn't really come into effect until 2026. So it, it does beg the question how helpful it is going to be to people. Yeah, I have to admit I'm skeptical, not only because of the delay in implementation, but more so because with all the rhetoric from the administration about oh, we're going after big pharma, they have not once said the word PBM. And when we compare lower drug costs in the, every other country in the world, except for the United States, where the United States has the highest drug costs, the one big difference, someone would say, well, in other countries, the government can negotiate with, with pharma. And while that may be true in other countries, the other thing that's not mentioned, what I believe is really driving up costs is the U.S. is the only country in the world that relies on PBMs to administer their prescription drug benefit. We're the only country in the world, and we pay the highest drug costs. So when the administration is you know, very happy with themselves that they are able to negotiate with big pharma, they've left out the most important element. The PBM is still involved. The PBM is still going to be up to its tricks to add costs to the system. I'm skeptical that we're going to see huge savings from the government negotiations as long as the PBMs are still in the middle of the transaction. 
And Greg, your thoughts on this as well, because obviously as a independent pharmacy, you know, do your customers understand this when, you know, they're seeing these prices? Are they asking you questions as to why they're being charged these types of prices? And if so, do they do they understand when you're trying to explain to them that it's way beyond your control? It's a very difficult process. I will tell you, when I wrote the letter to my state representative, she didn't understand this at all. In fact, I had to you know, sort of give her a little bit of a history of what has happened. And the analysis, Doug's right. The PBM is the problem on this. And, you know, you hate to sit there and say, oh, well, these are the bad guys you're you're going after them. Well, the problem is they do control everything. They are not only the superpower, as Doug said with the data, but also they're the conduit to everyone raising their prices. They're essentially the shill that says, okay, look, it. as long as you pay me, I don't care what the drug prices are doing. And in fact, quite honestly, they make out better because they get a percentage of their administrative costs just on the drug pricing. Behooves them to let the manufacturer then say, okay, I might have to pay 30 to 40%, which is now really a real significant number because I said 75 and I already told you my average prescription was $347. So if they're getting 30 to 40% of that, well, now they're getting well over $100 per prescription. So they're getting their take. They're then making more money on the increased cost, their percentage. They are making a fortune and they're the conduit. They are actually the people that have created the system that has increased the costs. Wonder why our legislators don't understand that. I hate to think are participative in this because this is so wrong on its face. When you sit there and start telling somebody, their eyeballs light up and they get upset when they're sitting there and saying, hey, hold on here. Tonight, I'm sitting there and cutting back on my meals to have my meds. And these guys are taking my money. It is a hard concept to understand. And the PBM is really a bad actor here. And that's that's a real, real problem. You know, pursuant to this, we got into it with 10 drugs. I think what is kind of interesting is President Biden, just a year ago, September of 22, brought in the Inflation Reduction Act. Fantastic. Great. I'm glad somebody's doing something. But to pick 10 drugs, well, how come Eliquis that ran out of its patent in 2019 And I don't know if you're aware, but with the FDA, when they get a rebuttal to their expiration date of a patent, they automatically extend the patent life two and a half years. We're talking about a a billion dollar drug. And if you can get two and a half more years because you, you said, hey, look at this isn't right. And even if in 2019, when their original patent was supposed to run out, their patent isn't going to run out till November of 2026. Isn't that interesting? that the 10 drugs don't kick in till 2026 and Eliquis now loses its patent in November of 2026. So it's going to be generic anyways. Another drugs on that list, Novolog. Well, there's already a generic for Novolog insulin. Why are we buying the brand name? Is the state through their state employee contracts, are they not probably getting some money for this? Is there a reason why they would want to pay a higher price for the next three years on a brand name Novolog when a generic already exists? I mean, because even when the state as or the employer gets money from this, probably through the PBM, there's probably being told that they're going to lower their costs. They're going to you know, reduce that share. Isn't the state then participative in increasing the drug cost? Because the company 
yeah, we're going to give you this money. We're just going to raise our price. And who ended up paying? It is always the public that ends up paying. And our legislators are charged with the job, the hard job, of lowering those costs, making those tough decisions. I mean, why is it so hard for the U.S. government and or the state of Connecticut in, in their particular plan to sit there and start saying, you know what, we're the payer, we're the payer. We're going to tell you what the costs are. We're going to have to leave it there. It is a huge yeah. conversation. But I thank yeah. uh, Doug and Greg, obviously, for your input today. But of course, I think, you know, it does just bring to light the question that, uh, you know, whenever big government is involved in anything, it never does run anywhere near as smoothly or as uh, cost effective as maybe it should. We will obviously be keeping an eye on this continued situation with regards to the pharmacy benefit managers. And obviously, the progress, as Doug has said, is slowly being made. But uh, in the meantime, time to you both. Thank you for your input on this and for helping us to understand a little bit more about pharmacy benefit managers. You're welcome. Thank you. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. That's what we were taught, service before self. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When is the last time you reached out for help? If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. It's hurricane season, and your trees can be damaged by high winds. Green Valley Tree has you covered with our emergency tree service outside of our regular business hours. We offer emergency tree service by bucket, crane, and climbing for residential, commercial, and even municipalities across eastern Connecticut. From full tree removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken, hung up, or fractured tree limbs. Call our emergency hotline on 860-966-5710 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. As kids return to school, Connecticut's teacher shortage could harm the new school year. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has more. The state's Department of Education finds numerous school departments are facing a shortage of staff. Polls and studies show this shortage has been brewing for years now, with burnout being the result. While the state is offering a swath of incentives to learn new teachers to public schools, education experts feel more can be done. Kate Diaz with the Connecticut Education Association says one solution being considered is having the state join the Interstate Teacher Mobility Compact. So I think that there's a lot of conversations about does that make sense for us? How does that marry with our reciprocity that we have widened? And I always appreciate a cautious approach, but I also think that the conversation out of necessity has shifted to what makes the most sense for us at this point. She notes another question being considered is whether Connecticut's education standards could be maintained. Though Diaz isn't ruling out the compact, she and other state education experts feel there could be other solutions to solving the state's teacher shortage. So far, 10 states have joined the compact, with five others considering being a part of it. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. Governor Lamont and Connecticut emergency management officials announced the start of National Preparedness Month. The observance, recognized annually each September, raises awareness about the importance of preparing for disasters and emergencies that could happen at any time. Connecticut is currently in the height of hurricane season, and officials are advising residents to take the steps necessary to prepare for any emergency that could potentially impact the state. The Atlantic hurricane season runs each year from June 1st to November 30th, 
with the principal threat period for Connecticut occurring between mid-August and mid-October. Lamont is encouraging residents to download the state's CT Prepares app for their mobile devices. The app, which can be downloaded at no charge from the Apple iTunes Store and the Google Play Store, provides Connecticut residents with information that is useful in emergency situations and also gives preparedness tips in advance of an emergency. Additional tips can be found online at ct.gov forward slash ctprepares. Residents can also follow the Connecticut Division of Emergency Management and Homeland Security's social media pages for weekly tips throughout the preparedness month. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal has been visiting Connecticut manufacturers recently, touting their growing involvement in the green energy industry with the products they make. Blumenthal visited family-run Spiral in Danielson in the northeast of the state and spoke to their 250 employees about the work they do and the 75th anniversary of the company, which has facilities in several other states and locations worldwide. Blumenthal said what Spiral makes every day is essential to so many other industries, including the growing green energy sector. Green technology, you know, Tesla... Fuel cells made by UTC, or what used to be known as UTC, then became Raytheon. Now it's called something else. But the point is, again, whatever they call themselves, they're using your stuff. And the same is true of solar, of a lot of any company that uses fasteners. Jeff Cole is the CEO of Spiral International Corporation and said over the years, the company has continued to evolve the products it makes to serve existing and new industry sectors. All industries, whether it be standard automotive to medical to aerospace to military, but in the last 10 or 15 years, we've really done quite a bit of work in alternative energy, whether it be in car batteries like Tesla, and we're strong in the EV market to, or Tesla power banks in your house to wind turbines. Spiral began back in 1948 with the invention of the coiled spring pin, which is a major component that can be found in machines and mechanisms across the world. The company boasts clients in the military sector, as well as making parts for wind turbines and even lithium-ion batteries. In Connecticut News Junkie this week, as colder months loom on the horizon, Connecticut is preparing to help its residents stay warm. The Connecticut Energy Assistance Program, or SEEP, has opened its application period for the 2023-2024 winter season. The program is designed to support Connecticut homeowners and renters who may struggle with the financial burden of heating their homes. SEEP offers basic benefits that range from $180 to $530, depending on the household's income, size and needs. The benefits are generally paid directly to utility companies or fuel suppliers, relieving recipients of the added stress of managing the bills. The program targets households with incomes up to 60% of the state's median income, translating that to approximately $79,910 for a family of four. In a special provision for those households using deliverable fuels like oil or propane, the program may also cover multiple free tank refills throughout the winter. The program is aiming to help an estimated 116,000 households with heating costs in the state. For those interested in applying for the program, visit the Connecticut Department of Social Services or contact your local community action agency for application assistance. In the day this week and the future of the offshore wind industry in the US is looking shaky. 
Danish wind giant Orsted said it's prepared to walk away from projects in America unless the White House guarantees more support, highlighting the myriad of challenges facing the wind energy developers in this country. The US, far behind Europe and China in the race to build offshore wind, is targeting a jump to 30 gigawatts by the end of the decade from next to nothing now. While the Biden administration has touted its landmark clean energy subsidy program to kickstart projects, developers must ensure a large chunk of components are US-made to take full advantage of the incentives, and that's proving hard to achieve. We are still upholding a real option to walk away, Orsted Chief Executive Officer Mads Nipper said in an interview in London recently. But right now, we are still working toward a final investment decision on our projects in America. Orsted is part of the partnership with Eversource, currently developing State Pier in New London as a platform for the offshore wind industry on the East Coast. No comments have been made as to whether Orsted's current predicament will have any impact on the $300 million State Pier project which is yet to be completed. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.